Hello, my name is Dotun Holo Poroku, and this is Building the Future Podcast. I believe the African story will be written by Africans, and there are people crafting the narrative now. This podcast is a series of conversations with people whose ideas and work is shaping the African future. This is the second part of my conversation with Yele Bademosi. You can listen to the first part of this interview in the last episode of this podcast series. Apart from being the founding partner at Microtraction, Yale is also the founder and CEO of Bondo, a social payment application for cash and cryptocurrency transactions. Yale is the person I go to for any question I have on blockchain and cryptocurrency. In this episode, Yale and I discussed his previous role as a director at Binance Lab and his highly optimistic views on blockchain and cryptocurrency in Africa. We also discussed his thoughts on credit and other alternative funding instruments for tech startups, apart from equity. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. I want us to quickly move to how your thoughts then start evolving into blockchain, mm. cryptocurrency, and what you're doing now with Binance Labs. Mm-hmm. Maybe we can start from the basics mm. of cryptocurrency, how <laughs> that got into you, and how you started getting attracted into that. Yeah. And I know when that initially we were conversation, I remember one evening that we were talking about your thought around cryptocurrency and now you're spending more time reading about it. Mm-hmm. Fine. That's just bad, <laughs> but it, it stopped being a fad. It became something that you went deeply into. Yeah. So we can start from that basics and then your ideas and your thoughts mm-hmm. and what you're doing now. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really good question. So I think two concurrent things happened at the same time. One was the more I spend time trying to understand, you know, why is there a huge difference in the amount of capital that goes into sort of, you know, investing in Europe and the US and Southeast Asia versus Africa, as well as, you know, the initial kind of like speculation that was going on within digital currencies at the time. So, and I'll break that down. So in terms of sort of like just capital formation on the continent, Again, I can't remember the exact numbers, but I think, you know, about, about $120 or $130 billion, respectively, went to you know, the US and China's venture ecosystem, whilst the whole of Africa had like about 1% of that, right? And so my thesis then at the time was that the, our current capital markets infrastructure, this includes things like, you know, how is it is for a company to raise capital, you know, private property rights sort of like our stock markets, all of these things just weren't up to the standard of like the rest of the developed world. And so for me, when I think about sort of like financial infrastructure, I think about it kind of, kind of like landlines and mobile phones. Mobile phones were a leapfrog on kind of like the technology stack for communication. And I was trying to figure out like, okay, what does a new infrastructure look like? I didn't have the solution, but I, Kind of like the the end of that thought experiment was that for Africa to go through rapid economic development, we need kind of like new, or we need to leapfrog our existing capital markets infrastructure into something that is transparent, something that is, you know, borderless and trustworthy. And the current status quo just doesn't work. So we'll stop at that point. Then, you know, this was sort of like uh, 2017 when, you know, the price of Bitcoin was like going crazy. I mean, I'd heard about Bitcoin before. I think the first time where I really had someone talk about it was in medical school. I had a friend who her dad had bought her some Bitcoin as she was getting into school. 
And I remember messaging her on LinkedIn now. I was like, I hope, I hope you didn't sell your Bitcoin because the price, what it was then and now has gone up like, you know, maybe like 50x or something. But so I initially got into sort of like this whole cryptocurrency and blockchain space because of the speculation. And I was trading cryptocurrencies. And, you know, I, I remember thinking that like, man, like, you know, if I invested in like treasury bills, I'll make 12 to 18% in a year. If I did farm crowd D or, or thrive a Greek, I'll be lucky if I can get maybe like 30% in a year. But I'm seeing on coin market cap, these assets going up 17% in a day. So I was like, okay, I need to learn how to trade. You know, so I bought some technical analysis books, you know, was reading stuff online. I started trading on a bunch of digital currency exchanges. And I kind of felt like, okay, I have a strategy that is working. I remember the first time I did a successful trade, I, was, I felt I was like, it shouldn't be this easy to make money. Like I've literally just sat on my computer and I've done a trade. And in 24 hours, this trade was successful and I gained sort of like 11% in 24. Like, this is crazy, you know? So, and then I, I remember saying, okay, I can't be sitting on my computer 24 hours. I need, to, I need to actually go out and live a life. And, you know, I taught myself Python in like a month and I was writing trading algorithms and I was trading and, you know, it was successful. So purely my initial interest into crypto was purely about speculation and the ability to sort of like make, you know, double digits daily gains on, on successful trades. Yeah, because actually the speculation drew a lot of people. Yeah, 100%. And made it a little bit mainstream. Of course, def- definitely. But what happened was, I remember on Twitter, there were a couple of like US investors that I followed and a lot of their tweets started becoming more about like digital currency and crypto and like the ideology and and all of this stuff. And, you know, I remember a tweet from Naval. Naval said, if you really want to go down this rabbit hole of crypto, literally go on my following list and anyone that has any blockchain, crypto, you know, digital currency stuff in their bio, just follow them. So I actually created this sort of like uh, list on Twitter. And I started reading it. And the more I read it, the more I began to really, really understand kind of like what the potential of this technology could be. Yeah, it's interesting we mentioned Navar because it was the first person that actually made me actually to see the cryptocurrency beyond the speculation yeah. and, and how it underpins a shift in how value is being created and how value can be distributed. Yes. Yes. In, in a democratic way. Yes. And he actually linked it back to how money is created and yes. value and, and yes. how people shift yes. and, and, and now things shift in terms of the idea around money mm-hmm. and value creation. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think for me, like what really, really, really got it for me was a few things. Number one is this concept of disintermediation, right? In that today for any kind of like economic transaction or like, you know, economic activity, there's always middlemen between the buyer and the, and the seller, unless it's an actual cash-based transaction. So if I want to buy something from you and we're in person and I give you cash, there's absolutely no middleman. But if I wanted to pay you for some service and it was going to be through some digital means, there's a middleman, right? There's a bank involved, right? And, you know, you can increase the number of middlemen on, you know, for instance, Uber is a, is a marketplace that matches riders and drivers together. Not only do you have the banks and the payment companies, you have Uber. And so the number of like middlemen means that you need to sort of like trust people, right? And the idea that you could sort of like streamline economic transactions and activities by this intermediating middlemen was kind of like one of the first powerful ideas that I understood about it. But what actually got me was this idea of coordination at scale without a centralized authority, right? So I personally believe that, and I think we talked about this earlier, that, you know, for you to have true economic development, you usually need sort of like the buying from government because 
government to date has been the only way to sort of like coordinate and organize millions of people who don't necessarily trust each other. So through nation states and sort of like governments and, and sort of like the institutions that they create, it allows kind of like economic coordination at tremendous scale. The idea of a blockchain is that you can get people who don't know each other, don't trust each other to economically coordinate towards some particular goal without the need of a centralized authority or a middleman, right? And that for me is a very, very, very powerful idea because it means that on a very small scale, you could get three people who don't know or trust each other to kind of like embark on some, you know, agreed objective or outcome. And that same three people, that same technology can be used to scale up to like millions. Now, to date, we don't necessarily have that because, you know, the technology is not there yet, but the idea still remains the same. And so, like, I just began to, like, read more and, like, learn more. And, like, I got really, really excited. And then there were two points. Well, one was that I realized that although this technology has tremendous potential, we're still very, very far from kind of, like, the, the utility. There's, there's a video of Bill Gates explaining the internet to David uh, Letterman. And, you know, he was basically mocking Bill Gates because... Everything that Bill Gates said the internet could do, there was something that already existed and was was better than, than the internet, right? But what we don't really understand is that like technology improves and constantly gets better and they're like there'll be kind of like adjacent fields and research and and sort of like discoveries that feedback into this core technology innovation yeah. that makes it a lot more useful, right? And, and people always underestimate the degree of growth technology development yes. and its adoption yes. because of the way it's actually meeting needs. Yes. Every time people underestimate yes. that yes. Yeah. growth, yes. whether it is the telephones or whether it is TV mm-hmm. or, or, or aeroplane, yes. people underestimate every, how every... quickly we move from Austrian carriage mm-hmm. to cars mm-hmm. and to aeroplanes. Yeah. It's just yeah. you, you underestimate how quickly that. And I think something about sort of like the whole blockchain and digital currency space is that financial technology or like fintech has actually been more innovation on the delivery of financial services, right? That is like you've never really had innovation, like a disruption to finance itself, right? So in the like the way I think about it is I, I use Netflix a lot, right? So what fintech is today is kind of like Blockbusters and Netflix 1.0. Netflix 1.0 was saying, instead of you going to a store to go pick up your DVD, I'm going to use the internet and sort of like a logistic service to deliver you know, the case sets and DVDs to your house, right? That's, that's what majority of fintech is for, for the most part, right? What Netflix is today is actually sort of like purely digital, right? That is, is an innovation on the actual sort of like Netflix 1.0. So with blockchain and digital currencies, it's the first time where money itself is actually being sort of like disrupted. And that creates kind of like a white space for innovation. Even with the, you know, total levels of limitations with technology, there's one use case that blockchain continues to outperform, which is capital formation. Interesting. Right? That is, there is no other technology in the world that allows borderless capital formation at scale and as quickly as the blockchain does. That's why you've seen sort of like ICOs go from, you know, allowing individuals raise anything from, you know, a million dollars to a billion dollars. And all of this can be done in, you know, a very, very short space of time. You know, I was discussing to you where I said, I actually think like payments is already being disrupted, but it's not just evenly distributed. That is today, you can move 
$360 million worth of value for less than $10, right? So even when people are charging sort of like 0.01% or like 1.4% to move money from A to B, that's a short-term thing. It's not going to be there for, you know, within the next sort of like five to 10 years. And that's because like digital currencies kind of solve that, right? So the cost of moving value today is like nothing, right? Number two is that like now, because it's like, it's, it's, it's purely digital cash, it means that some an entrepreneur in Kenya potentially raise capital from, you know, a group of supporters and crowdfund capital from 200 investors from 200 different countries. And it doesn't need to worry about like things like the bank accounts and how you're moving that money and all these types of stuff, you know. And for me, that, that is like extremely, extremely powerful, right? And so a lot of my pieces when it comes to like digital currency and like blockchain today focuses on capital formation and even the, the blockchain-based exchanges that allows individuals and businesses move value from like A to B. And I can go into like details about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about our capital formation. The value has to be created from somewhere, mm-hmm. right? Maybe from traditional ways in which value is created. Sell a service, I get money, and the money sits in central bank somewhere. Mm-hmm. And then at some point, that money moves into digital currency. Mm-hmm. And then, then I can distribute that and form it in a borderless way, in a central way. Mm-hmm. And use it to fund a project somewhere else. Mm-hmm. I'm just trying to be simplistic yeah. about, about it as much as possible. So, but at some point, the, the value was created physically or somewhere in, yeah. a, in a geographical location. Yeah. So right. I think, like, the way I think about it is that at the end of the day, a lot of value in the world. So I think the total market cap for digital currencies is about $200 billion, right? The amount of value in the world is in the trillions of dollars. Yeah. So, majority of that value flow has to come from traditional assets. It has to come from assets into blockchain-based right. assets, right? However, what now happens is that, for instance, any value being held by Bitcoin, even if the value goes up and down, is value that is like outside the control of the governments and banks, okay. right? Because I can move that value to you in a peer-to-peer manner. So if I send someone Bitcoin into, let's say, Mozambique, that individual can find a counterparty who wants that Bitcoin and can give you the equivalent in whatever the, the, the local currency is in Mozambique. So the big difference here is that it's like digital currencies has created an alternative or parallel settlement currency that is outside of the control of nation states. And it's not dependent on the market. And it's not dependent exa- exactly, right? Before, if I had Naira and I wanted to see these, I would have had to either find someone who also wants Naira and is willing to trade for CDs, so a double coincidence of wants. And that is one of the biggest issues when it comes to cross-border transactions. And that's why the USD became hugely popular because the USD created this settlement currency that allowed you to trade your currency to USD. And then you know that, okay, when I have USD, I can sell USD for some other local currency somewhere else. Now, Bitcoin is that settlement currency or asset, but it's not owned by one particular country. And it's purely digital. There are people who remember like their private keys offhand. And it means that if they put 100K, 1 million, that is money that they hold like mentally, which is, you know, very different from, you know, any traditional forms of storing value. Yeah. So I think like it's super interesting and we're just still in the early innings of what this technology could be. Let's talk about how the speculation affects the adoption and mm. also ebbs and flows. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm interaction with cryptocurrency. Mm-hmm. I remember late 2017 was their hype and everybody and their dog was buying Bitcoin. <laughs> and then it was huge. You know, you know that you're following the crowd when everybody's talking about it in the news and it becomes the subject of the Christmas party. 
conversation. You know that that's something that is not the best to do. But let's talk about how that affected things. Mm-hmm. And also the general use case of blockchain generally. Mm-hmm. Can you talk more yeah. about that? So speculation has its benefits in that like speculation tends to draw people in. You know, if you actually look at price charts for Bitcoin since inception, you'll see there's been a series of bubbles and, you know, booms and bust cycles. But what tends to happen is that during every bubble there are a whole new group of people who get drawn into the space and stay so that's the job who would leave so maybe 90 percent right but you would have that conversion you know between that you know five to ten percent of people who stay and become fundamental believers and then that one percent of people that will decide to build so for me speculation kind of drives price and what is interesting about it is that the price of bitcoin is about maybe seven thousand dollars now when I bought Bitcoin in 2017, it was $1,000 and it had just did a run up from maybe like 500 to like $1,000. And that was a big deal, you know, and within three months that grown to like 3K and that was huge. But because Bitcoin went up to 20K and it's 7K, everyone is saying that, but it went to 20K. But you're going to realize that current low is magnitudes higher than the previous high of like the last three years, right? So... At the end of the day, like money is a shared delusion, right? But most fiat, most fiat money is a shared delusion that is backed by the government, yeah, right? And what tends to happen is with Bitcoin, like it's, it's actually quite very simple to explain the, the economics of Bitcoin. And I can try and break that down very quickly. But you basically have a technology that allows you to, you know, prove that an asset is one digital, number two is scarce. That is, you can never create more than 21 million Bitcoins ever, right? And you can 100% verify that this particular Bitcoin doesn't exist somewhere else. So it's kind of like, if I have my phone, unless I give you my phone, there's only one of my phones. But for any other form of digital assets, it's very easy to create a copy of it. That's why you can copy and paste, but you can't copy and paste Bitcoin. So that's one of the biggest innovations. So how does Bitcoin have value? It's very simple with supply and demand. So if you have an asset that is probably scarce and is, and is 100% digital, and there's a limited number of that particular assets in circulation, the more people who own that asset or like buy that asset, because there's not a lot of supply, the price of that asset will go up because people are refusing to sell that asset. So what has happened in the last couple of years is that, and there's no way to kind of like calculate this, but every single year, the number of true believers of Bitcoin and digital currency is increasing. And the more that number increases, and that number is growing at a magnitude, the more that number increases, the more people are going to buying and holding this currency, and then the, the higher the price will be in the future. So it's a very interesting and unique piece of technology. I want to end by us talking briefly about some of the random stuff that we talked about, which is the tendency of most startup innovation, startup opportunities in Africa to go towards financial services, mm. financial inclusion. Mm-hmm. And, and the whole thing is around the idea of credit. There are more credit in the world than money. Mm-hmm. And credit being the facilitator of growth mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. because you can bet on, on the future mm-hmm. now by, by taking credit now. Mm-hmm. I wanted to expand more on that. Yeah. And you're thinking around why a lot of mass market innovation we tend towards financial yeah. service. So I think that's super, super, super interesting question. And one of my key pieces is that every African startup 
would kind of evolve towards the financial services company. And that's because regardless of the whether it's an individual or a business, the core problem that they have is that they want to grow their business, right? And to grow their business, they need access to capital. And for most businesses and for most SMBs, if they keep raising equity, they're going to dilute away their ownership. Currently, anyways, um, although I have some pieces about that, they only current alternative for those types of companies is debt, right? So giving them access to credit. And so I think as all of the various startups continue to scale, they would realize this problem. So for instance, let's let's use some some examples. Pharma started off as a basically they allowed kind of like pharmacies to to have access to drugs and, yeah. and things like that. Yeah. But, inventory. And, and, and like inventory management and supply. But actually what they are doing is credit, right? They're able to give different types of, of pharmacies inventory on credit. And they earn money on the future sales of the particular inventory. Another company of ours, School Label, started off as a school ERP. And now they're focused on providing credit to parents and to, to schools. And so I think it's definitely very, very interesting because, you know, when you look at any developed or well-developed economy, you would understand or see the role that credit plays in that particular ecosystem, or like market sizes and things like that. The, the, one of the largest market size number I've seen was actually the credit gap. The credit gap in Africa, I think, is about $457 billion. That is a huge, 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 huge market. And the beauty about credit is that like that, that number can only get bigger because as the economic grows, yes. the amount of credit that you have in the ecosystem is going to grow. So yes. $475 billion sounds like a lot, but that is like the lowest that number is ever going to be. Yeah, because credit, like you said as well, is actually taking a bet on the future. On future, yeah. I fundamentally believe that the future is going to be better, better than, than, than now. today, exactly. And so that's economic growth is a factor that people want more. Exactly, right? So as I was saying, like the money supply of like actual physical cash is a subset of the money supply of the digital cash and kind of like that you have on your bank balance. If everybody was to take, all of us took all of our cash that we have on, in our wallets and put that and counted everything, that amount of money would be smaller than the, if we all added up our, all our bank balances together, right? And that number is usually smaller than the amount of credit that has been given into a particular economic system, right? And that is also smaller than the, than the total asset value because then that takes into account equity debt and, and you know, various types of assets and whatever. So, like you said, like, credit is very important because credit allows you to borrow money from the future, right? But again, if done poorly, it can actually lead to disastrous outcomes, right? So, the last great economic crash was a failure of the credit system when it came to like housing mortgages, yeah. right? That is giving people access to capital and mortgages that they know for a fact they are, they are not unlikely to like make those payments. And it was also commoditized in a large scale. Of course. And again, this is one of the beauties of like, of like blockchain, right? This, this concept of DeFi or, or open finance or decentralized finance. And it's this idea that if people build derivatives on the blockchain, you could literally track, see every single transaction. You could know this was like subprime or not subprime. And this was a derivative of like some assets. And it takes something that is opaque and paper-based into something that is purely digital and you can build kind of like products to, you know, show insights and what's going on. So there's a lot of very interesting things happening when it comes to like open finance with blockchain that for me is quite interesting because if one of my biggest concerns with like the credit space in, in Africa is if it's not done well, there are two things that, that, that I think will happen. One is there's actually kind of like extractive lending, which is like very, very high interest rates, which sometimes, again, like I stand to be corrected and I, and I, and I wish maybe someone would 
you know, respond to, to this podcast and say, yeah, you're wrong on this and, and please do. When you compare the, the interest rates for a lot of the well-known lenders and compare that against the default rates, the, the interest is like very, very high. And that's why GT Bank, GTB launched sort of like their, their, their lending product and the loans that, they, that they're giving out, very few startups can beat that, right? And I think it's probably a function of two things. One is like the cost of capital. If you... Yeah. If you're a bank, like your cost of capital is like very, very low, right? You, you basically can lend people's deposits mm-hmm. and it's very difficult for a startup to beat that because yeah. it's only because most startups that get debt probably raise that debt externally, not taking into account like inflation risk and all those types of stuff, macroeconomic risk. Then the second one is kind of like the quality of your underwriting engine and then the kind of data that you have access to. And so... I think like the, there's definitely a problem of like, you know, wherein you give people credits for not productive use cases. So consumer type credits where you are giving people money to buy things that they wouldn't really be able to afford. I, I, I don't think that's very good from an economic growth perspective. You should give people credits because they want to sort of like pick up some skill that increases the quality of economic opportunities that are available to them. Or you know, it's given to like businesses to sort of like expand, create jobs. Like that's where credit is Which actually is impactful on the economy. And, and even that, you have to be careful that you're giving them money that we produce something at a rate that is faster than your, the, your, your, your actual rate. interest rate. Exactly. And also, you have to also consider the rate of inflation. Yes. If I give you a hundred naira now, by this time next year, that mm-hmm. hundred naira will devalue by like eight percent. Yes. So I'm giving you already without a, a at touching my own interest rate, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you're borrowing that money at one hundred eight percent, at eight percent, and then if I had my own interest rate, that's mm-hmm. more. So you must be using that money for something that will be far, that will beat my interest rate mm-hmm. and also beat the the, the the rate of inflation. Well. Yeah, yeah, I agree, and I think so. This is where some of my viewpoints around kind of like you know philanthropy kind of like diverge. I think as opposed to philanthropy, people who want to be, who want to be philanthropists should actually take that capital and add it to a credit pool, and then that way you don't really care too much about inflation because if it was a philanthropic gift, they're giving that money away, right? So that capital can then be deployed towards reproductive credit purposes, but the, the, the hedge for inflation is kind of reduced. Do you understand what I mean? So and again, the cost of capital, and the cost is, of capital also is also reduced. So, yeah. so, so in, in my mind, like when I think about, I hear people talk about like the giving pledge and stuff, I'm like, man, like if I could see in front of Bill Gates and the wealth from the world, I'd be like, have you guys thought about, thought about this, right? Because I think that is a huge problem. And so I think, you know, credit is super fascinating. We just have to figure out sort of like what are the right ways to go about this. I agree with you on that. And there's some culture usually where, you know, predatory lending can incentivize in a wrong way mm. and make people to be dependent on money that mm-hmm. on things that they can't afford mm-hmm. and build a culture that is really bad and brings out shame in some places mm. and then leads to mental health issues and suicide because of the shame that mm-hmm. is attached to lending mm-hmm, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. to borrowing money and and dependency as well. So mm. there are a lot of works that have gone around the, the, the double-edged world of microfinance mm. institutions mm. which in some cases catalyzes local yeah. economy but in some cases also bring about a lot of shame and, and mental health and in some cases suicide. Yeah. I think you, you really analyze in a way that I've thought about. I've come across a lot of companies that uh, pitched to me about micro lending, consumer lending and always Tom mm. in the that father. It's very rich of me to to be living in the UK and have mortgage and have more credits than, than I have <laughs> in terms of my own money and use banks money to, to buy a house and talking about, oh, you shouldn't be lending the poor money. 
That, that's that's like yes, yeah, so like a But then also, it's also unfair for me to be paying like one percent, one point five percent interest rate to my mortgage, and which then is cheap. And then and then someone is paying. paying Poorer person is paying like twenty yeah. percent interest monthly. on monthly on something yeah. that is very small. So I, I can. It see is. That. It is. I think it's, it's it's crazy. Why I got into blockchain is for me it's this idea of innovating on the core infrastructure of finance, which before now didn't exist. That's just the truth. Like innovating at the core infrastructure of finance has never existed because it wasn't digital. And when something becomes digital, then there's so much stuff that you can you can do. But a lot of these things and the challenges that you talked about, I don't think it's going to be like, you know, just one individual that solves it. And that's this idea of like open finance, right? Wherein one company can never have monopoly over people's assets. So for instance, if today the users of Binance are unhappy about what Binance is doing, they can literally vote with their feet and very quickly withdraw their funds and go to some new exchange. That's how Binance went from sort of like being a new exchange to being the largest one in the space of about six months, right? And that that is very, very difficult. Can you imagine how you can't even start a bank today Right, and then all of a sudden you go to becoming the largest bank because it's very reason is not as easy. You, I can't take my my nine mobile SIM card digitally and go to MTN, and I can't do that from MTN to you know Airtel, right? So traditional business and even things that were digital creates locking. You cannot exit Facebook and go to a new social network, a social graph, right? But the idea of like decentralization and blockchain is kind of like solving that, creating interoperable digital systems that makes it better for the end customer and actually allows a creation of an ecosystem of developers and you know you know applications that can improve the quality of users experience so we i think about it is like we're definitely not there now but in the future the way we have to move between services both whether financial or like non-financial would be as a result of some of these underlying technologies that the blockchain enables it's good yeah. I know we've, we've spent a lot of time talking about so many things and I think we've covered so many things that I want to cover in this conversation. <laughs> so it, it was a long time coming conversation and it was well worth it. And I know next time we'll be talking more about a few things that you're mm-hmm. doing, that you're building now, Binance Labs and, and a few other stuff that we can talk about later. So mm-hmm. I want to end this conversation by asking you two questions that I tend to be asking my guests going forward. Mm-hmm. And one of them is what idea that has recently changed your viewpoint about something? That you probably you write somewhere or, or you got to know that just change your viewpoint. Mm. Okay. So I'm reading a book called Loonshots. And Loonshots talks about this idea of, of explaining why large companies struggle with innovation and figuring out how do you maintain kind of like an innovative mindset as a company begins to scale. And I, I wish I can go into more detail, but the big idea here is that if you took those same individuals in some of these companies and put them in a startup, all of a sudden, that same individual that was very driven by politics and sort of like big company type mentality and mindset would, before you know it, is acting like, you know, any typical startup person, right? And so it's not about the people and it's definitely not about culture, right? They talk about this idea of like structure, right? So for me, that, that's kind of like a new lens where I think about how do you build an organization? So everybody has talked and there's so much stuff you can read about kind of like a company culture. But have you ever heard anyone talk about a company structure, mm. right? And tying ideas around sort of like physics, this concept of phase separation, the Dumbers magic number. And I have a very logical mind, right? I hated physics, but I have a very logical mind. And 
to me, it really made me think very deeply about understanding that culture is important, but organizational structure is very important as well. And designing incentives around organizational structure to create a more productive teams. That's kind of one of the um, more recent things that I've, 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 I've... And maybe you've answered another question, which is, which book are you reading at the moment? <laughs> so yeah, I'm, I'm reading a book called Moonshots at the moment. I think it's, it's, it's amazing. I'm also reading a book called Traction, How Any Startup Can Achieve Explosive Customer Growth. I think more and more people should read that book. I'm reading a book called High Output Management by Andy Grove and the Principles by Ray Diallo. And I'm quite a libertarian in my view. So I'm currently reading two books. One is called The Libertarian Reader and the other is called The Libertarian Mind. It's good. So yeah, I read, I read a lot. I think another lesson from Naval was there's this idea that you can only read like one book at a time. So you only read this one book. But I'm like, when you ask people like, how many TV shows do you watch? They'll tell you like, I watch 10, yeah. 12 TV shows. And, and they're watching them concurrently. But somehow we felt that we can only read one book. And that's because books for the most part were still in the physical form. Yeah. But with audio books and digital books, you can read, you know, as many books as possible. And also the, the idea around book is centered on our experiences from schools mm. where you go through schools in phases mm-hmm. and you, so the idea that you can only go through class one and, and you read a particular textbook before going to the next mm-hmm. and that locks down love uh, mindset around you should just focus on one book and be disciplined in finishing that and mm-hmm. move to mm-hmm. the next one mm-hmm. and, and it can also be bad in the sense that you, you start a book and it's a bad book Mm. And because in school you've been told that you have to go Finish through it. it, then you have to. You, you can continue. stop the book. And you just stop it. Just, it's a bad book. <laughs> just stop it. Oh, you don't need that. And just stop it. All yeah. the idea that you have to go from one chapter to another no, no. chapter. If no. it's not a story, you can move to the yes. chapter that you really, really want yes. to know. And yes. then you read that. Yes. For example, the book, the book by Eric Reis, uh, mm. the main startup. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've, I've quoted a book. I've done ebook about the book. I've, <laughs> I've recommended it a lot, but I've never finished reading it. Never. <laughs> Never finished reading. I've only read the book. Whatever, whatever the key things that you want. And it's the one of the books that changed my view about startup from yeah, the beginning. Yeah. When I started my startup, that was the first book I interacted with. <laughs> but never, because I was reading it and said, wow, this is good. I'm going to do it. And I started doing it and I forgot about the book. I was doing what the book told me. And then I got it. Let me read it again. I said, wow, this is great. Let me do that. And then and I stopped reading the book. So I've never finished the book. But it's book, this book that shaped my thinking, the way I do startups yeah, more yeah, than yeah. anything. But I've never finished it. <laughs> I can really, I can really have so many books like that. But, you know, I think one, one tip I'll leave your, your listeners is that, you know, get script. It's, it's basically like a Netflix for books. It's about $9 a month and you can listen to audio books. And that's different from Kindle. It's different from Kindle. Is it better than Kindle? The problem with Kindle is they have something called Audible, which is like audio books. But you, you, but you, you have to get, subscribe for that. You get like one book. You get like one book. A you have to subscribe to a different service and you get one book a, a month. Whilst with with Scribd, you can get access to multiple books and both audio, both and audio and 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 the, the the written versions. And with audio books, you can listen at. It takes sometimes. You know, I listen at books sometimes depending on the type of book. One point five to two um, x speed. And the average book can be anything from six to twelve hours, which means that I can read a book a book in like three hours to six hours. And if I'm listening like one hour a day, I can go through a book, one book a week. And you don't have to buy the book individually? No. Okay. 
So, so like for me, I'm going to try something next year. I'm not quite sitting on a read two books, but I'm going to create a, 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 a list of various books that I want to read. And I will just listen to them and see kind of like how many books I can go through by the end of the year. And you can listen to them also without internet offline. Yeah, exactly. You can download the books. So um, someone going to spend a lot of time on a plane can just... Exactly. When I'm traveling now, before I used to like watch shows or like movies, like now I just listen to books. When I'm stuck in traffic, even... You know, it's kind of like what makes my Lagos traffic experience more more pleasurable. But yeah, I think audiobooks plus um, script would supercharge the number of books you can you can read in a in a year. Thank you. It's great talking to you, Yale. And um, likewise, Dotson. Hopefully, catch you back on the show. Definitely. So many more things I will talk about. Good. Thanks for listening to this episode. Before you go. I'd like you to subscribe for this show wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review if you can. You can also follow me on Twitter at drdotun, that is D-R-D-O-T-U-N, or through the website drdotun.com.